the politicians feared they would be unseated by this one born to be king. Matthew 2, 1-16, John 18, 37. In the wilderness, the devil tempted Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world with their power and glory. Luke 4, 6. At the height of His popularity, His adoring followers sought to forcibly make Him their King. John 6.15 At the end, Governor Pilate judged Jesus on charges of seeking political power. In every instance, Jesus showed no interest in occupying an earthly throne, explaining, for my kingdom is not of this world. John 18.36 But what if is an intriguing question. What if Jesus ran for president? Would He win? The candidates for office this year or any year would have nothing to fear. Jesus would not want a seat in the Oval Office. But if He were a candidate, how popular would He be? And what kind of candidate would he turn out to be? Let's ask this question of Scripture this morning and answer it with four different titles or offices that Jesus occupies. We'll begin in Isaiah 53 and observe the Prince of Peace would make an attractive candidate. Isaiah 53 was read in your hearing. And the second verse says, He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Perhaps that figure does not resonate or connect immediately with many in a modern world, but what He is saying is that Jesus the Messiah would not have any advantages upon His entry into this world. He would be like a tree that was planted in poor soil that did not have a lot of moisture, a lot of nutrients to be able to really flourish. He would be like a root in a dry ground. So on the one hand, perhaps Jesus would not make an attractive candidate if someone were looking for a candidate to run for an office. When you consider when He came the first time, He was born in a poor family that had little reputation. His father was a carpenter. His parents were so poor that upon his birth, as a firstborn male Israelite, there was supposed to be a lamb offered at the temple for him, but they did not have a lamb to offer, Luke 2.24. So they substituted the poor man's sacrifice of two turtle doves, Leviticus 5.6. Jesus was a root out of a dry ground because He was born into the most detested nation on the face of the earth. Historically, no nation has been hated more than Israel, and yet Jesus was born a Jew. Isaiah 65, 1-5, Jews are described as seeing themselves as holier than thou and as smoke in the eyes, and they have been conquered and reconquered many times throughout their history. Jesus was born as an Israelite. 
Not only was Jesus born in Israel, but Jesus was born in the disreputable city of Nazareth. When Philip introduced Jesus to Nathanael, Nathanael's response was, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? John 1, 44 and 45. And Philip said wisely, come and see. Jesus was not trained in the great educational institutions of the land. When He was teaching on the feast day once, His enemies said, How knoweth this man letters having never learned? John 7.15 Jesus did not come riding on a white stallion at the head of a column of soldiers wearing a general's garb. He was not the kind of leader that people were looking for. In fact, He did not lead any military. He did not foment any political revolution in the streets. And He even turned down the popular appeal of the people on multiple occasions, not wanting that kind, not wanting to be that kind of a leader. His message was one that did not appeal to the common prejudices of the people and sometimes was over the heads of those who heard Him. In John 6, He preached that He was the bread of life. And when the people heard this saying, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And from that time, many walked no more with Him. And He said to the twelve who remained, will ye also go away? John 6, 66 and 67. So on the one hand, we might say there were some detractors from Jesus as a candidate for office because He was a root out of a dry ground. And although there was no form or comeliness or no beauty that we should desire Him, the last part of Isaiah 53.2 says, there was something about His personality. There was something about His lifestyle that caused the common man to hear Him gladly. Mark 12.37 And many thousands of Jews and Greeks came to see Him and hear Him preach. John 12, 20 and 21. Jesus had many traits that would make Him a great president. When you consider that Jesus was a man of high principle, He was a knowledgeable man on all the issues. He knew people. He had solutions. He was a good communicator. He was unselfish. He was sincere. He was fair. Jesus was a man to be respected. And so, people in His own generation, when He was here, held Him in high esteem. At least the common people did. When you begin to look at His life in more detail, you see that He had these traits that would make Him such a fine candidate. He was a man who treated all classes of people the same. There were no big eyes and little U's. Jesus did not curry the favor of the rich at the expense of the poor. Nor did Jesus somehow seek to win over the poor at the expense of the rich. Jesus loved all men. He loved the poor. As we see, especially in the book of Luke, which is sometimes called the Gospel of the Outcast, you see it in Luke 4.18, for instance, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
Luke 6.20, again, Blessed are ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Luke 7.22, again, Jesus was referencing the value of the poor. And Luke 21, 2 and 3, there was a, a certain poor widow who cast in her two mites, which was hardly going to be noticed by those who did the counting of the contribution that day. But Jesus complimented her because she had given more than all the rich who had cast in much, because she had given all of her living. Jesus loved the poor, but He also loved the rich and the young and the powerful. You see that in Mark 10.21 when the Bible says that Jesus, beholding Him, loved Him, referring to the rich young ruler. There was a follower of Jesus who was named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, Matthew 27.57. Jesus was one who respected even the rich Pharisees who did Him every imaginable harm that they could think of. But when He received an invitation from Simon the Pharisee, He went to His house. He was treated discourteously, but He did not mention it until Simon brought up that the woman who had also come in uninvited and was a sinner had really treated Jesus better than the host. But Jesus was one who treated all classes the same. We also see that Jesus championed the underdog and the unworthy. None were greater underdogs in that society than the publicans and the sinners, but Jesus interacted with them. Matthew eleven eighteen and 19, Luke 7, 34. He was criticized for that, and He said, the whole don't need a physician. I'm the great physician. He said, would you criticize, I'm paraphrasing, but would you criticize a doctor who was among the sick people? Should a doctor only stay among the healthy people? And he championed the underdogs, even defending them when they were criticized. For instance, in Luke 15, 1, the publicans and sinners gathered to hear Jesus. Luke 15, 2, the scribes and Pharisees murmured against Him, this man receiveth sinners. And Jesus defended them by telling those three great parables of Luke 15, the parable of lost sheep, lost coin, and lost boys. Jesus was magnanimous toward His enemies. He had, as we sometimes sing, the power to call 10,000 angels and to destroy His enemies, but He did not. And even on the cross, as was on the PowerPoint during the Lord's Supper that you may have read, Luke 23, 34, Jesus prayed for His enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine a leader who loved the poor and the rich? A leader who championed the underdog? A leader who was magnanimous toward His enemies? that could reach across the aisle, as it were, to those who had differing views and would treat them with respect. Further, Jesus was patient and dignified under trial. 1 Peter 2.23 says that when He was reviled, He reviled not again. That is a difficult trait when one is under pressure and under fire and being criticized, to be able to let that go, to be able to answer in kindness instead of in kind. But that's the way Jesus was. He did not revert to the tactics of His enemies. Jesus' character was above reproach. 
There were no skeletons in his closet. There was no little black book of illicit relationships to be discovered to his shame. There were no sins that would derail his candidacy. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.21 He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Hebrews 7.26 He said to his enemies, Which of you convinceth me of sin? John 8.46 And you can read the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book, the rest of the Gospel accounts, and you'll never find where they ever convicted him, convinced him, of any sin. They trumped up charges to carry him before the governor, but they did not have any substance. And Jesus was the only man who ever lived who never sinned, who never said, did, or thought something that he should not have. He never treated any other human in any other way than with love. Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived because of his character. And what a leader of men he was and would be because of his character. Jesus was the prince born to be the prince of peace. Isaiah 9 6 says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And at the end of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He was born to be prince, but not a prince that rides to power with his boots bathed in the blood of his enemies. Not who one, not one who comes to power with a force and fear behind him, but brought to be a prince on the power of love. Not only so, but He's a prince of peace. Not a prince of war, not a prince of hate, but a prince of peace. That refers to the fact that He was a man of peace. Also, it refers to the fact that He grants peace to those who follow Him. Peace with self, peace with God, peace with others. And in every society where His laws have been followed accurately, truthfully, peace is the result. So Jesus was the Prince of Peace. While other men seek for glory by the slaughter of their enemies on the fields of battle, Jesus sought for glory by the slaughter of Himself on the cross of Calvary. Other men pursue crowns of gold. He accepted a crown of thorns. Matthew 27-29 Other men... Seek for greatness and having others serve them. Jesus showed His greatness by serving others. John 13. Jesus stooped to death that He might conquer death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57. Yes, the Prince of Peace would be an attractive Candidate, But let's consider a second idea. The friend of publicans and sinners would be an effective campaigner. If one were considering running for the highest office of the land, consideration would have to be given to his physical health and to his energy level. For it takes a tremendous amount of energy to day after day meet crowds of people and travel many thousands of miles 
and stand before large audiences of people for months on end. But Jesus was one who did exactly that. When He was on earth, He crisscrossed the land of Palestine, going from city to city and village to village and hamlet to hamlet, meeting the people, letting them see Him, hear Him, observe Him, get to know Him. Jesus was with the people. And Jesus was so popular at times in His ministry, it had been prophesied that He would be the desire of nations. Haggai 2.6. And He was... When you just look at the book of Mark, for instance, Mark is the gospel, uh, the gospel that was geared toward the Romans. They were a people who were active. They were governing the world. They were an industrious people. And so Jesus is presented there as the miracle worker. He's presented as a man of deeds. He is presented as a man of action. Immediately He did this, and immediately and straightway He was there. Johnny Ramsey used to call the gospel of Mark, Jesus' photo album. Because it's like flipping the pages of a family photo, and you have this family member in this pose at this place, at this time he flipped the page. He's at another place another time, but he's, he's doing all these wonderful things, and Mark is just taking us through his life like that. When you look at Mark chapter 1, just beginning, and almost uh, verse after verse, you see this. Mark 1.28 it says, And His fame spread through all the region of Galilee. In Mark 1.33 it says that all the city gathered at the door. Mark 1.37, All men seek for thee. Mark 1.45, Jesus went out of the desert, but they came to Him from every quarter. Mark 2.2, again, there was no room for them, not so much as about the door. Mark 2.15, Many publicans and sinners came to Him when He ate. Mark 3, 7. Mark 4, 1 and 2. There were so many people gathered that He entered into a boat and went a little bit from the shore and He taught them on the bank. Jesus was extremely popular. What a great campaigner He was when He was here. But it was not only His personal charisma that led others to follow Him. For He predicted, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto Me. John 12, 32. And Jesus is more popular this morning with more people than He ever was when He was on the earth. Jesus is the most recognizable name among men even to this very hour. I came across a quote from H.G. Wells. He was not a friend of the faith, but this is an interesting quote. He says, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Kenneth Scott Lauterette, an American historian of world history, his primary emphasis was on the history of China. He was up at Oregon State. He died in 1948. Still recognized as a great historian. He made this statement. As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that, measured by his effect on history... Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. Albert Einstein died in 1955. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by this luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such 
life. Jesus is quoted more than any other figure in history. More books have been written about Him than about anybody else. He has been the subject of more artist treatments in sculpture, in prose, in poetry, in paintings than anyone else who's ever lived. Jesus was, a, was, was correct when He said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto Me. Now, let's go back and review what we've done to this point and go to point number three. We observed in the first place that, <clears throat> that Jesus was an attractive candidate. Our response to that is admiration. How can you not admire a man who lived as Jesus lived? And then we observe Jesus as an effective campaigner. What, is that, what response does that evoke within us? It draws us nearer to Him because He was a man of the people. He did not stay in heaven and tell us about how great He was. He came to earth and showed us how great He was. He did not come to earth and stay in a palace or in a mountain as a guru and some men might venture to go to Him. He came down and interacted with the people. He showed us who He was. He drew near to us so that we could draw near to Him. We respect Him. We draw near to Him. But then number three, we observe, if Jesus ran for president, would He win? This title of Jesus, Jesus Rabbi of Nazareth, a controversial figure. Yes, Jesus was popular with many people, but He was not popular with everybody. When He was here the first time, we find that He had enemies. He had critics. Today, everybody, it seems, has an opinion of Jesus. I've read a good bit lately about Jesus on the internet. And everybody has an opinion of Jesus, it seems. And often they are representing very opposite ends of the political or religious spectrum. And yet everybody seems to think that Jesus is on their side, that Jesus is an advocate for their view of the world. So it is safe to say initially that preconceived notions of who Jesus was are not always accurate. And what we have heard of Jesus, what we may have thought about Him in the past, we should reevaluate lest we see that we are really seeing a caricature of Him. Or we're seeing something that's not true of Him at all. In the worst cases, Jesus is blasphemously associated with behaviors that He abhors. In most cases, He was just simply misunderstood as He was when He was here sometimes. For instance, the, the, the picture of Jesus as a hippie, that's a common misconception about Jesus. As the long-haired, communistic, maybe drug-using uh, drifter. Well, the Bible nowhere supports that. That artist's conception of Jesus with long hair comes about because of a misunderstanding. Jesus was not a Nazarite that never had a razor to come upon His head. Old Testament. He was a Nazarene. He was from the city of Nazareth. And most Jewish males did not wear their hair long. Most likely Jesus never did. I was amazed when I began to read among a younger generation about Jesus how often they would say, I could see Jesus using some form of cannabis. I believe Jesus used recreational drugs. What in the world could lead one to that conclusion? 
Did you know that Jesus refused even the anesthetic that was offered to Him when He was on the cross? As a, in horrific pain, he, when they held it up to Him, He would not take it. Jesus was not a drifter. Jesus was not a knockabout. Jesus was not someone without purpose. No, He was a rabbi. Teachers were highly respected in ancient Israel. Possibly the highest respected occupation one could have with the possible exception of a priest or a member of the Sanhedrin court. And Jesus was a rabbi, a rabbi of Nazareth. And people recognized him as being a man of great wisdom when he was here. But others, on the other hand, did not think Jesus knew anything at all. They felt threatened by Jesus. Um, I'm going to come back to that point tonight. I'm gonna, I have a section here, we'll do this tonight at the beginning of the lesson, where we go through the, the conversations about Jesus behind the scenes. It's so interesting to see people talk about Him. He's this. No, He's this. He's not this. He must be this. It's interesting to put those verses together. We'll do that tonight. But now we will move to our fourth point. If Jesus ran for president, would He win? Number four, the resurrected Lord and Savior is your winning ticket. You know, all the things that are talked about in this campaign, and we saw a few of those in the Bible class, we'll observe some more of them tonight, the issues that we're facing as a nation, none of them is the most critical issue facing you and me this morning. The most critical issue we are facing is not who will be president, it is who will be Lord. It is not how this election may affect your pocketbook. It's how your decisions will affect your eternity. For what shall a man give for his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul is worth more than all the world. Matthew 16.26 And regardless of who wins the presidency, of how this nation's economy may go up or down, what really is going to matter when the world's on fire, when we stand before God in judgment, will not be what happened in the year 2016, unless the event that we're talking about is when we obeyed the gospel and became a follower of Jesus Christ or, were refer, or began again to serve Him faithfully. Jesus satisfies the needs that no president can. If you are spiritually thirsty this morning, He is the water of life. If you are spiritually hungry, He's the bread of life. If you are in darkness and wondering what to do, He is the light of men. If you are drowning in despair or in addiction, He's the lifeboat. Matthew 14, 30 and 31. If you are heartbroken and hurting, He is the great physician. Mark 2, 17. Now the price to be one of His followers is great. You cannot follow Him unless you are willing to give the reins of your life over to Him. That's what the word Lord means. It means to be master or ruler. Unless I'm willing to allow Him to direct my life, I cannot be one of His followers. If any man will come after me, after me let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Luke 9. 23. We must be willing to give up 
even our families if they oppose our decision to become Christians. Matthew 10, 32-34. We must be willing to give up friends who would stand between us and heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. We must be willing to give up any sin that has been a pet of ours that would separate us from the love of God and from a life of righteousness. The, the cost is great, but the rewards are greater. If we are willing to come to Him, He will, give us, he will adopt us, He will save us, and He will reward us in heaven. Rudyard Kipling came to America, the great British poet and author. He became deathly sick when he was in San Francisco, and he was in bed for a number of days, teetering between this world and the next. One day he was speaking in a whisper, but they couldn't hear him, so one of his caretakers got down right beside his mouth and listened to what Kipling was saying. And he was saying over and over, I want God. I want God. I want God. And he was speaking for the human condition in my judgment. There is a hole in the heart of man that's shaped like God. There is something missing in every life until one finds God. And He's the piece of the puzzle that makes the whole make sense. And I wonder this morning, is there something missing in your life? Have you been wondering what it is? May I suggest that you investigate Jesus of Nazareth? He is the solution to life. There was a man who was very successful, but he was not very religious. He had a devout wife, but his, their, their son was killed, young son was killed. And after that, there was a change in the man and he became interested in religion. And his wife was intrigued to see him reading his Bible as he had never done before. And he would sit in his study and he would underline verses from Scripture. And one day she became curious. He was at work and she thought, I wonder what he's underlining in his Bible. And so she took it off of his desk and she flipped through the pages. And she saw that every time there was any mention of heaven, he had underlined it. Do you have a similar interest in heaven this morning? Are you underlining it, if not in your Bible, in your mind, as the place that you want to be? the goal that you want your life to aim at. When my eyes are swimming with their last tear, when my heart has beat its last time, when my ears have heard their last word, when my body is racked with its last pain, may my last thought be of God. If you're subject to the invitation this morning,